Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 46, Tsar of the Serbs and the Greeks. No new Patreon supporters since, well, I think about last week, but as always, consider pledging. Also, just so everyone knows, uh, I've promised for a long time to create this special History of Volga Bulgaria miniseries. Well, at the moment, I've got some time off between jobs, so I've actually been working on it. I've got uh, the first, I don't know, maybe thousand words or so written, and it's coming along nicely. I think I might release the first part of that miniseries to everyone as a kind of little incentive to consider pledging. But for everyone who wants to see what they'd have to pledge to get this special miniseries, just check out the Patreon page. Also, you guys can look forward to very shortly getting a special little podcast extra uh, connected with Game of Thrones. So look forward to that. Uh, it's already written. I just have to record it. So probably very soon. So last time we left off with an all too familiar situation. The Balkans were in a state of flux, states rising and falling in the political landscape moving under our feet. Wallachia managed to assert its independence by ambushing a large Hungarian army and soundly defeating it. The Ottomans are laying siege to the last Byzantine cities in Anatolia, with the latter seeming powerless to stop them. Serbia inflicts a crushing blow on Bulgaria, killing its Tsar Michael Shishman. And the, and the Byzantines take this chance to take territory from a weakened Bulgaria. Also, ominously, in 1329, the Ottomans made their first raid into Europe, targeting several cities in Thrace before being forced back across the Straits to Asia. These raids would continue at regular intervals for years to come. So now, back to Bulgaria. Ivan Stefan and his mother, the sister of the Serbian king, Anna returned to Ternovo to rule. Ivan's uncle and despot of Vidin, a man named Belaur, supporting the new Tsar. He decided he was going to support him. Uh, but the other boyars besides uh, Belaur were a lot more skeptical of Ivan. They kind of saw him as a puppet of Serbia, which is understandable. I mean, they Bulgaria just lost a massive battle to Serbia, so the boyars are not feeling particularly gracious towards Serbia. It, no doubt they all have people they knew who died at this battle. So, yeah, they, they're not a fan of the new Tsar. They're not a fan of this new policy. Losing that lightning war against the Byzantines at the beginning of his reign didn't help Ivan Alexander either. So right, he comes to, to power only because these people who just defeated Bulgaria forced him into power, and then he immediately loses a war. So not popular. By 1331, two of the most senior officials in Turnoval were completely fed up with Tsar Ivan and decided to orchestrate a coup, installing the despot of Lovech, Ivan Alexander, in his place. Anna and Ivan Stefan fled to Niche, which is, was in territory controlled by his uncle, Belaur. At the same time, Belaur declared Vidin's independence from Turnoval in response to his family's overthrow there. Right, so 
it's again, it's really unsurprising that uh, that Tsar Ivan lasts just a brief moment. Ivan Stefan is installed on the throne, but the circumstances, losing the worth of Byzantines, the boyars are just not having it. So now we have Ivan Alexander. And by the way, Lovich was sort of a fortress city. It still exists today. I need to visit one of these days, but I have friends who used to live there. Uh, so it's, it's kind of this important fortress city north of the Balkan Mountains. You can see it on maps. So just like that, super quickly, we have a new Tsar, Ivan Alexander. So who, who exactly was he? Well, much like the Shishmani of Vidin, he was a despot of a powerful fortress city in Bulgaria with an excellent royal pedigree. Michael Shishman, the recently killed Tsar, was actually his uncle, and he happened to be married to the daughter of Bessarab I, that newly minted ruler of an independent Wallachia. Though he could also trace his ancestry all the way back to the founders of the Asin dynasty, just like the Shishmani. Um, so basically, he's really, really well connected. He's descended from the royal family, but um, so yeah, he seems like a well-equipped guy to become Tsar, and but still, just kind of like the Shishmani, um, historians do give him his own dynasty name. So we have the Asin dynasty and the Shishmani, who in uh, the the um, you know, Tervel's dynasty. And although all these people are technically related, we still give them different names. This new dynasty is the Stratzimir dynasty. So that's his. So while Ivan Shishman moved Bulgaria away from Serbia and towards the Byzantines with his divorce of Ananeta way back when. His defeat in the ascension to the throne, he uh, and the ascension to the throne of Ananeta's son Ivan Stefan brought Serbia or brought Bulgaria back into the Serbian orbit. Sorry, it gets a bit confusing. So essentially, you know, so it's like the Bulgaria is moving towards the Byzantines away from Serbia. Then they lose this war against Serbia. The Byzantines abandon them, so they move closer to Serbia. At this moment, the Byzantines attack them. Uh, and now they've, you know, ditched their pro-Serbian uh, Tsar, so now they're moving away from Serbia again. They're kind of all over the place. So now the question is, all right, with Ivan Alexander, will will Bulgaria try to move back towards the Byzantines, right? They just he just overthrew a pro-Serbian Tsar. So are they going to be pro-Byzantine now? Well, Ivan Alexander answered that quick very quickly because almost right away after he became Tsar, he decided to campaign against the Byzantines to retake Thracian lands that the Byzantines had conquered following the Bulgarian defeat against the Serbs the previous year. So, this puts Bulgaria in an interesting situation, right? So, they're not friends with the Serbs, but they're also attacking the Byzantines. So, who are their friends? I mean, obviously, Wallachia, right? Uh, they're, the, the, the new Tsar is related to the, the leader of Wallachia, so Wallachia is going to be an ally, but they're not a super powerful state. So it's an interesting foreign policy. We're going to have to see how that uh, plays out in the long run. Because in the short run, this campaign against the Byzantines was quite fast, quite successful. He retook a lot of territory. And at the same time, the Ottomans under Orhan managed to successfully take Nicaea, leaving Nicomedia as the only kind of remaining Byzantine city in Anatolia. Also around the same time, the Serbian prince Stefan Dusan overthrew his father, the king. 
Now, this conflict began with some disagreements over whether to expand south against the Byzantines following victory over Bulgaria. It escalated into a civil war, which the younger Dushan won. Uh, that civil war is a very, very long story, and we just do not have time to get into it. So what you have to know is there was a brief kind of Serbian civil war, which I guess is lucky for Bulgaria because it meant that Serbia was quite distracted when the pro-Serbian Tsar was overthrown. So Serbia couldn't you know, jump in, invade, and intervene. Um, but so now we have this younger Dushan as the Tsar, in Ser- or as the, the king in Serbia. So this change in leadership uh, actually opened up a critical opportunity for Ivan Alexander. Because the danger of a war against Byzantium and Serbia was really, really serious, as I just sort of mentioned. But this change in leadership in Serbia allowed him to conclude an alliance with the recent foe, because it wasn't, well, it was the same person he was fighting against, but still, something had changed. And so this is an opportunity to switch up their foreign policy. And that's what Ivan Alexander did. This alliance was cemented with the marriage of the new Serbian king to Ivan Alexander's sister, on Easter of 1332. So we had this brief moment where Bulgaria was in a very precarious situation, being kind of potential enemy against the Byzantines and the Serbs, but within about three years it was resolved and Bulgaria chose to ally itself with Serbia, which it's kind of a funny thing. You see this a lot in in history, right? So the previous Tsar, uh, Ivan Stefan, was very unpopular because he was seen as like a Serbian puppet. And, uh, you know, Serbia had just defeated Bulgaria. The, the boyars were not happy with the pro-Serbian policy. But his successor was able to legitimately just have a Serbian alliance and no one minded. And so sometimes it's curious. You see that the, you know, very similar foreign policies can be perceived very, very differently just based on the circumstances and the perception of why that alliance is happening, whether it's sort of an alliance from a position of strength or an alliance from the position of weakness. But anyways, that same year, 1332, Ivan Stefan, the overthrown czar, and his mother moved to Dubrovnik. So they've moved very far away from Bulgaria, all in exile. But at the same time, Ivan Stefan's brothers go to the Tatars to seek assistance from them and the Byzantines to try to overthrow Ivan Alexander. So that is something to worry about. Also in 1332, the former Byzantine emperor and grandfather of the current emperor, Andronicus II, died as a monk in Constantinople. So that old grandfather, Andronicus, who fought those many, many civil wars against his grandson, is finally dead and gone. But more important events are occurring elsewhere. Ivan Alexander still had that rebellion in Vidin to contend with. I briefly mentioned that, right? So when Ivan Stefan was overthrown, his uncle Belar in Vidin decided to rebel against Dronovol. So while Ivan Alexander's been fighting against the Byzantines and concluding peace with Serbia, he's had this rebellion in Vidin to contend with and sort of like left it alone for now. But it's time now for him to, well, consider it more seriously. However, just as he's going to do that, the Byzantines invade Thrace to re-retake it from the Bulgarians. They do so without formally declaring war and kind of catch the Bulgarians off guard and are able to make significant gains while uh, the Tsar is up trying to deal with Vidin in the north. But soon it becomes pretty clear that actually this Byzantine threat in Thrace is far more serious. And so Ivan Alexander turns his soldiers around, leaves Vidin unfinished, and rushes across the country in five days to meet the Byzantine armies in Thrace. The two forces met near the modern city of Borgas, uh, near the seaside, just kind of a few kilometers inland from the Black Sea. 
Now, initially, Ivan Alexander met the Byzantines with a force of about 8,000 soldiers, compared to their meager 3,000. However, knowing that 3,000 more cavalry was on the way, Ivan Alexander decided to, well, instead of pressing the attack right away, instead just open negotiations and drag them out for long enough for his reinforcements to arrive. When the Bulgarians were ready, they positioned themselves for a fight and the Byzantines realized they had no choice but to accept that fight. And so the battle began at six in the morning. The Byzantine emperor's main goal was to ensure that the Bulgarian cavalry could not surround them. He knew they were very much outnumbered, almost four to one, but he still believed in his soldiers. He believed he could win. But so this is how it was. The Bulgarian cavalry managed to get behind the Byzantines anyways and broke their lines and caused them to flee to the rear in panic. Those Byzantines fled to a nearby fortress, which was quickly surrounded by the Bulgarians. And so everyone settled down to a siege. The Byzantines, no doubt terrified in their small fortress, completely surrounded by enemies and wondering how it had come to this. Well, luckily for the cornered emperor, what Ivan Alexander wanted was actually peace, stability, and a return to a Bulgarian-Byzantine alliance, not just a Serbian alliance. So again, somehow Ivan Alexander, within a very short time, is going from being enemies to both his big neighbors to possibly being friends with them both. And so instead of, you know, killing the emperor, as he very well could have, a deal was struck. The Thracian lands were once again returned to Bulgaria. Ivan Alexander's son, Michael Asen IV, and Andronicus's daughter, Maria, were engaged to be wed to solidify this new friendship. And so now, everything taken care of in the south, Ivan Alexander could turn his attention back to his uncle, Belor, who still holed up in Vidin and resisting the authority of Ternovol. But here, I, I want to mention a quick milestone. So that battle that just happened is a battle of Russo-Castro. And it didn't seem like a huge battle, you know, not a huge number of soldiers involved, uh, a decisive Bulgarian victory, but, you know, not a, a huge shift in geopolitics. But what it was was the last of 45 named battles between Bulgaria and the Byzantines, which began with the Battle of Ongal in 680. That's six and a half centuries before this battle. So much time is so for perspective, as much time has passed from the establishment of the first Bulgarian state south of the Danube and this battle as from the establishment of the first Bulgarian state south of the Danube and the death of Christ. So just to give you an idea of where we are now, it's been six and a half centuries of Bulgarian states in the Balkans, but you know, there are going to be more Bulgarian-Byzantine wars, uh, and I don't want to kind of give away the ending and everything too much, but still, 45 battles between the Bulgarians and the Byzantines, which were substantial enough to have a name and to have historians know their names, this is the last one. So, anyways, away from that bit of historical perspective and back to the Second Empire. So, Ivan Alexander begins the process of subjugating his uncle in Vidin. This war drags on for five grueling years. Because remember, Vidin was a very powerful fortress, something you can still see today. You can go there now and see the walls of the Baba Vida fortress. They are very large and very thick. And so as a result of this, it was only in 1336 that an army of 10,000 
finally managed to defeat Belaur. And so, at this point, Vidin was brought back under the authority of Turnoval. Now, during these five years, Ivan Alexander, in addition to fighting this war, worked to ensure his legacy and that the Bulgarian state would survive and even thrive once he was gone. So to this end, he made his son, the aforementioned Michael Asen IV, who was now going to be married to Andronicus's daughter, co-emperor in 1332, so he would be prepared for the job, much of the way the Byzantines have traditionally done. But very interestingly, he did something that the Byzantines don't generally do. He also decided to make his two younger sons co-emperors and place them in positions to govern Vidin, for one, and Preslav for the other. So he's kind of hedging his bets. He's really trying to position all three of his sons in positions of leadership and authority, both so they can help govern the state, but also presumably in case something happens to one of them, so all of them would be prepared to take the reins and become Tsar. But so this is kind of it's an interesting strategy. Historically, this can be really good because, again, you have several capable sons who can kind of rule uh, if one falls or something happens. But at the same time, if you have several capable sons who all know what to do and know how to rule, it also opens up the door for civil war because it could mean that all of them are feeling prepared to be Tsar. And so all of them feel that they should be Tsar. So we'll have to see how this strategy plays out. So also during these years of the wars with Vidin, these five years, the Serbians managed to enlist the aid of the Byzantine governor of Thessalonica to help them out. And as a result, they continued to kind of expand southward, conquering huge swaths of northern Greece. The Byzantine governor was ultimately assassinated for his treachery for working with the Serbs, which brought peace back and allowed the Byzantines to retake a large amount of the captured land from the Serbs. But what's interesting here is that this showed just how strong Serbia was coming, how weak the Byzantines were, even in Greece, and that Bulgaria was not about to intervene against Serbia in spite of its alliance with Constantinople. Again, it now had alliances with both of these states, which meant that in the event of a conflict between them, which this really was, it was, I don't know, kind of up in the air. What was Bulgaria going to do? And in this case, Bulgaria really did nothing. So is this cunning politics or is this, well, sitting on the sidelines and making yourself irrelevant? It's hard to say. I think it'll play out over time, though. So meanwhile, in Anatolia, Nicomedia finally fell to the Ottomans in 1337, which meant that the only last remaining Byzantine stronghold in all of Anatolia was Philadelphia, which was nowhere near the coast and completely surrounded by Turks. Its continued existence really had no impact for this reason. Besides that, there were a few little strips of coastline, a few small insignificant ports, no real fortresses, but at this point, for all intents and purposes, the Byzantine presence in Anatolia, which you know, in essence started with the Roman Empire starting to take territory there, is over. As you've heard me say time and time again, Anatolia was really vital to the Byzantine Empire. Losing it meant far fewer soldiers, less food, fewer taxes, and a much more direct exposure of Constantinople to attack. It meant less secure trade lines. It was just a bit of a disaster for the Byzantines. Their empire simply could not afford to lose Anatolia and stay strong. And so what we're going to get now is a much less strong Byzantine empire. 
But there was still some good news for the Byzantines in this period. You see, there was a succession crisis in the despotate of Epirus, uh, which allowed the Byzantines to, without a fight, absorb Epirus back into the Byzantine orbit. Now, the power of that state was much less than it had once been, but still, the Byzantines were solidifying their control somewhat over parts of central and southern Greece, as well as uh, their Anatolian, Macedonian, and Thracian holdings. Well, as, sorry, as their Anatolian, Macedonian, and Thracian holdings fell away. So, in short, the Byzantines are losing somewhere, gaining somewhere else. So, there is some balance, but still, the territories that they're losing are core, important territories. And the areas where they're gaining are a bit more peripheral and less important. And in any case, within a year or two of taking control of Epirus, the Byzantines already had to put down a rebellion there. Because as we've seen before, the Greeks living far away in Epirus, as well as the Albanians living there, they were pretty okay being part of the despotate of Epirus, their own small state, but they did not like being ruled from Constantinople. But still, Andronicus III managed to keep everything together until his death from what may have been malaria in 1341. And so, yeah, the Byzantine Empire, it's gaining, it's losing, but like it's, it's holding together. But at the moment of the death of Andronicus, nearly everyone sought to rush in and take advantage of the new power vacuum. The Serbs immediately launched a raid deep into Byzantine territory. Albanian tribesmen raided Byzantine settlements, and Turkish pirates from a rival Turkish state based in modern Izmir on the Aegean coast launched pirate raids all along the coast of Macedonia and Thrace. In short, nearly every Byzantine enemy was chomping at the bit to take some plunder, to take some territory, to take gold, anything they could from this weakened Byzantine state at the moment of the death of its emperor. Of course, the Bulgarians were actually included in this, despite their alliance, Bill, because as you've probably noticed in the Middle Ages, often an alliance with a person meant that when that person was dead, the alliance was more or less over. But instead of launching a war or a raiding party, Ivan Alexander instead decided to send a letter, a demand. Now, at this point, Bulgaria and Byzantium had been at peace for almost a decade. And so when Ivan Alexander and his pro-Serbian camp came to power, like since then, they really haven't had a major war besides the first small one. Uh, in the battle, but his father's Byzantine second wife and their children had fled, and well, this caused some awkwardness. But things are okay now. But the, so, the, so there, there's a bit of awkwardness with these. So the, again, the the Byzantine second wife of his father and the children, they're in Constantinople, and as long as they remain there, they actually have a strong claim to the throne in Turnerville. Now, this hasn't been a problem up until now, but Ivan Alexander, like any medieval ruler, does not like. The idea that somewhere is someone who has a very good claim to the throne. Because this uh, essentially could start a civil war at any time. And so Ivan Alexander thought, sought to kind of take this moment to eliminate that risk. So in this letter, he demands the return of his half-brother and the former Tsar Ivan Stefan to Turnovo. Andronicus III's son, John V, was now emperor. But he was only eight or nine years old. And so... A Byzantine regent and powerful Thracian landowner named John Cantacozenos responded. It was a strong no, accompanied with a nice threat. It was that the Byzantines would collaborate with one of those Turkish states with the navy to orchestrate attacks on the Bulgarian coast along the Danube all the way to Vidin. 
And this is a very serious threat. And it was actually carried out while the Bulgarian Tsar had time to think. The fleet arrived at the mouth of the Danube in August of 1341 and started to plunder the area, resulting in Ivan Alexander withdrawing his demand. Essentially, he thought the young John V would be a pushover, that he could get all he wanted. But sadly, he was wrong. And so he just kind of accepted no as an answer. At the same time, the regent John was repulsed, uh, also repulsed a Serbian invasion of Macedonia, as well as Turkish raids on the Thracian coast. So again, right when Andronics III dies, all of a sudden there's all this chaos, everyone's attacking. But once this regent comes to power, he sort of settles these things. But attacks were not just coming from without, they were also coming from within. Because while the regent John was away, there was an attempted coup in Constantinople. The perpetrators tried to kidnap the emperor and flee. However, they failed. They managed to get out of the city, but they were later pardoned by the regent John, which is a bit peculiar, but okay. So the Byzantine Empire is being attacked and getting sent demands from all over the place, and there's a coup. All these have been beaten off, but like, it's still a dangerous time. It really proved the weakness of the Byzantine state and the regime that governed it. So soon after resolving this coup, this coup the regent John marched off to Greece to retake some of the territory uh, that was run by those Catalan mercenaries. You remember I mentioned them in previous episodes. They now controlled some area in central Greece. So John's going to take that territory. While he is gone, yet another coup comes in and is more successful and succeeds in bringing Alexius Apokaukos, as uh, who was commander of the navy, to power. Now, Alexius doesn't declare himself regent or emperor. He just sort of pulls the strings while keeping the young John V on the throne. But he's definitely anti-regent. Uh, he's anti-John Kansakonenos. Uh, so this regent John, uh, in response, is declared emperor himself, co-emperor, by his supporters. As a junior emperor to John V. So this sets the stage for... What else but another civil war? This time between Kansakos and Apokaukos. Now, what's the difference between them? First, so Emperor John and Regent Alexius, I'm just going to call them that because their names are a bit messy. The Regent John, again, I mentioned he's a Thracian landowner, a powerful one. So he really enjoyed the support of powerful landowners. Whereas Alexius had the support of everyday citizens who were really tired of high taxes. So the population of cities across the empire, including Adrianople, saw the everyday people throw powerful landowners out in a show of support for Apokaukos, um, again, the regency based in Constantinople who just orchestrated the coup. So it's turning into a bit of a city versus countryside, powerful landowners versus everyday people. It's turning into a civil war with these lines drawn. Now, by the time spring of 1342 comes around, the situation is really not looking good for Kantakaneros. Bulgaria seemed to be supporting the regency in Constantinople, and city after city was being taken over by people who opposed him. So, he looked to Serbia for an alliance to retake the empire. Serbian king Stefan Dusan was reluctant at first, but ultimately agreed. As a result, that summer, a joint Serbian and Greek army moved south. 
Now, by the next summer, they had conquered Macedonia, Albania, and northern Greece together. Now, quick point here. In an attack on the fortress of Ceres, Serbian forces were forced to withdraw after suffering diarrhea, which resulted from drinking wine that had not matured enough. Totally random story there, but I just thought it was a bit entertaining imagining a bunch of poor Serbs who drank very young wine and got very sick from it, uh, and couldn't attack Ceres as a result. But anyways... Regency forces begged Dushan to surrender, uh, to surrender the, the, the emperor, the co-emperor, John, and end the civil war, right? So the Byzantine Empire was very recently in civil war. They don't want another one. So the regency within Constantinople are begging the Serbs to stop it because they have the ability to. But mm, the Serbs don't see why they should. The Serbian king was conquering territory ostensibly in the name of his Byzantine allies, but how that panned out remained to be seen. The co-emperor John, well, he was also asking for Bulgarian assistance, even though Ivan Alexander did send a small force to help him out. Those soldiers barely clashed with the Regency forces and mostly just pillaged things instead. So, yeah, the, this civil war is not off to kind of a grand start, and it's already be quickly kind of escalating into a wider Balkan war. So... Late that year, co-emperor John got a bit more help from a Turkish emirate, not the Ottomans, a different one, uh, who decided to agree to help his side of the civil war. Once he had this alternative base of support, uh, co-emperor John was able to move away from the increasingly powerful Serbian uh, king Dushan because he realized that, well, well, Dushan realized he no longer had much to gain from the alliance, both sides. Uh, so the Serbian king, seeing that like his ally was moving away from him, started negotiations with the regency. Essentially, the Serbs were very much ready to switch sides, depending on whichever would benefit them. And they were very intent on keeping the huge no amount of Byzantine territory that they had just conquered, along with the, their particular side in the civil war. So you're kind of getting an idea of what kind of man Dushan is. But for a little more color and context... A Byzantine chronicler described him as follows, quote, The king, Dushan, was insatiable, reveling in the civil wars of the Romans and considering this time the most advantageous to him and the greatest gift of fortune. Wherefore, he descended like a flame and was spreading over the Roman cities and land, continuously enslaving them on his way, since there was nothing to resist his assaults. End quote. Now, Turkish aid also made a big difference for the co-emperor John, as he gradually took fortress after fortress in Thrace with their help. But the flip side of this aid was that Turkish forces also plundered the land extensively, leading to further damage of core Byzantine territories that remained. So what was happening to Dushan, though? Was he still going to help the regency? Was he going to help this side, his previous side? And the answer, of course, is complicated. Dushan is expanding his territory, but this only really serves to help the Serbs and doesn't really help, at this point, either Byzantine faction. So he kind of switches sides, but doesn't do very much for either side. With the aforementioned plundering of the Thracian countryside, things went from bad to worse for the Regency in Constantinople, as both food and imperial gold became scarce. In fact, the Empress was forced to pawn the crown jewels to the Venetians so the regime could get a bit more cash. In 1344, they concluded a new agreement with Bulgaria. In exchange for assisting them, Ivan Alexander was given Plovdiv and nine fortresses in the Rodopi Mountains. 
It seems Serbia, Bulgaria, and the Turks were going to be the biggest winners of this Byzantine civil war. And their advantages were only going to continue. And not only for those three forces, because in this period, a Bulgarian military leader named Momchil, who had established himself in the borderlands between Serbia, Bulgaria, and Greece, specifically between the Rudopi and Pirin Mountains, where Bulgaria had just been given land. Well, this guy, he had long raided territories around him. He was very disliked. He was just this little, we call him a voivoda, like a little kind of uh, warrior guy. Well, the co-emperor John had previously allied with Momchil, but then Momchil switched the regency, as everyone seemed to be doing whenever it suited them. As a result, after raiding Bulgaria in 1345, the co-emperor John and his Turkish allies turned on Momchil, and at the Battle of Peritherion, uh, Momchil was outnumbered, he attempted to flee to the town, its citizens shut the gates to him, and he and his men were slaughtered. So, we have this brief little regency of Momchil. I kind of mention him because he's actually a very important person in the culture of that particular region of Bulgaria. They still sing songs about him and things. He's sort of considered this uh, great mountain warrior. So besides this, that year, King Dushan in Serbia began referring to himself as Tsar of the Serbs and the Romans, meaning the Byzantines. Now, this new title is very interesting because, well, for a couple reasons. I mean, first, Bulgaria seems to have supported the move, which is odd because considering the importance of maintaining balance of power in the Balkans and considering that Bulgaria would seem to want to keep the prestige of their own imperial title of Tsar uh, as sort of unique and powerful as possible. In general, it's very confusing to me why the Bulgarians supported the Serbs doing this. But the result was that with this declaration, the Balkans now has three emperors and three empires. The Tsar of Bulgaria, the Tsar of Serbia, and the emperor in Constantinople. Also in 1345, the co-emperor John sent an offer of peace to the regency. However, in spite of their situation and their weakness, they decided to reject it. Because at this point, the civil war was actually turning into a stalemate, and both sides were really losing badly. But still, they were unwilling to surrender. In September, the Serbian Tsar, now Dushan, finally took Serez, which meant that he controlled nearly half of the territory that the Byzantines had controlled prior to the civil war. Shortly, he would be formally crowned as Tsar in Skopje, in part in recognition for his achievements. So, feeling desperate, uh, the co-emperor John decided to marry his daughter to Ohan, the Orhan rather, the Ottoman Sultan, to gain another ally. And just at this moment, the Black Plague also hits Constantinople, uh, so their situation is only worsening. And really, all this leads to a situation where in 1347, uh, the co-emperor John and about a thousand soldiers are allowed into Constantinople uh, and spend several months laying siege to the palace there, awaiting the final surrender of the empress and the regency before finally just storming the palace and taking it. And thus ends the civil war. The agreement they reach is that the co-emperor John would be senior emperor for 10 years, at which point young John V and he would reign together as equals. Uh, John, the emperor, the, John V, also married John, the co-emperor's daughter, to further kind of solidify this deal. And so, six years from its start, this catastrophic Byzantine civil war was finally over. The empire was half its previous size. Two different Turkish states, as well as the Bulgarians and the Serbs, had been massively emboldened and enriched. 
Serbia had transferred itself into an empire, dominating an enormous chunk of the Balkans. Check out a map of the website. And the Byzantine Empire itself was simply exhausted. Economically, it was in shambles, and with good reason. From 1321 to 1328, they had experienced several civil wars. Now, from 1341 to 1347, more civil war. That meant the Byzantine Empire experienced two devastating multi-part civil wars in less than 30 years. Now, what remains to be seen is what will emerge from all this, what will happen in the aftermath. Without a doubt, the Balkans have been remade by this war. But whether the Serbs will continue to build on their success, whether the Turks will continue their rise, whether the Byzantines can rebound, and where Bulgaria will fall in all of it remains to be seen. All eyes look to Tsar Ivan Alexander. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. I'll see you guys next time. So, uspech, or in English, good luck. <laughs>